Hi, everyone. Um, the second Bible reading will be taken from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, to Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Um, you can find this in your pew Bible on page 1186, or it's there. And yeah, if you want to follow along with me. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted this good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Just a reminder that we will have question time, so uh, text in your questions. It is a different number to last week, so keep that in mind. Last week we started on a, a pretty difficult passage, and we continue with another difficult passage, and so we need God's help always, so let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to understand your word 
as it really is, the Word of God. And so help us to submit to it, to honour it, to believe it. And so we pray that you will help us all in the way we must go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I still remember the very first time I learned about the truth, the doctrine, the teaching of predestination and election. It was during my days as a uni student, which is about 20 years ago, which sort of frightens me a bit, I'm that old. Uh, but I remember the first time I heard of this doctrine, and I don't think my brain hurt as much as it did, if brains can hurt. How does it all make sense that God would preordain and predestine and elect? And so I suspect after last week's passage and chapter we considered, where we considered that God is sovereign in election, the salvation of any soul at all, it is ultimately God's choice and God's work. God's choice, not ours. That it is ultimately God's choice who gets to heaven in the end. And that verse from what Jesus said, Jesus said, You did not choose me, I chose you. And so, upon reflection, you must think, well, what about me? What about my freedom? What about my choice? Is God completely sovereign that I'm no longer responsible? Or am I fully responsible that God's really not in control? How do we make sense of this? And so I suspect that for some of you, your brains were probably hurting a bit this past week as well. Some of you might still, quite, uh, still feel quite confused perhaps dissatisfied, perhaps it just raised even more questions for you. It certainly did at my growth group on Thursday, this weekend retreat we had with our youth leaders. Some asked many more questions. It still hurts our brain. How do we make sense of all of this? But as we begin today, I'd like to begin reminding us all that as Bible Christians, that is what we are. We are people who desire to be faithful to the word of God always, faithful to what God has revealed to us in scripture. And so what that means is that we always try as best as we can. Whatever passage is before us, this is what God tells us. And so we try to understand it, make sense of it, but we believe it. And so we never ignore it. We never argue it away because it just doesn't make sense to us. And we never try to dismiss it just because it's uncomfortable. And we're not here to take sides. When we come to the Bible, we must remember this is God's word to us. His revelation to us, which reveals his mind. And what we must remember when we come to the scriptures is that God is God. God is always God. And we're mere humans. And so we must always remember his thoughts and his ways are, of course, way above our thoughts and our ways. And so what this perhaps will mean is that even after thinking about this doctrine and this truth, what this perhaps will mean is that we might just have to be satisfied that this tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility might never, ever sit nicely in our mind. But we remember that it certainly does sit nicely in the divine mind of God. So what 
do we know so far? Well, we know from last week that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. He is Lord. He is King. He chooses. He preordains. He elects. He predestines. But now today in chapter 10, we see the other half of the picture. You see, God in his unbelievable power and wisdom, he was able to make us human beings as responsible human beings with choices. We're not made as robots. I mean, that's the best we can do. We can make robots. We can make robots with artificial intelligence that have been pre-programmed in, but not God. God can make us, in his wisdom and power, human beings with personalities and emotions and choices and decisions. And we will be responsible for those decisions and choices. You see, somehow we do get to choose. Though God is absolutely sovereign and in complete control, we do get to choose. What remains in the mind of God remains in the mind of God but we still get to choose him. You see, we get to choose perhaps the biggest choice we'll ever make in life. Bigger than what course you study, what job you do, where you live. Bigger than even who you marry, if you choose to. We get to choose as people made by God to either accept or refuse God's offer of salvation. God is sovereign in salvation. It is God's will and work. But we are all responsible in obedience. And that is our choice. Do you understand? Do you see that distinction? God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. But we are all absolutely responsible in obedience. And that is our choice. Now maybe you're still feeling that tension in your mind, in your brain. It is hurting. What well, that is that is, in a sense, good. God is absolutely sovereign. We must always affirm that. But we're absolutely also responsible. We affirm that too. It seems to be intention, but they are both true. And our passage today will help us see that. Our passage answers two big questions for us. Firstly, why isn't it that everyone, why isn't everyone saved in the first place? And secondly, how can anyone be saved in the first place? So let's consider this first question. Why isn't everyone saved in the first place if it is God's choice ultimately? I mean, what went wrong there? Well, the answer is here. Paul gives it to us. The answer is because People have gone about being saved the wrong way. They went pursuing salvation the wrong way. They went down the wrong path. And so people that, the people that Paul speaks of here is specifically the Jewish people. If you think about human effort, human achievements, humans doing good, trying to follow rules, trying to be religious... They are your people, the Jewish people. They are extremely religious, rule-keeping, law-keeping people. Now, in our family, in our family devotion, we've been reading through the Bible from the beginning, Genesis, and now we're up to the book of Leviticus. Now, if you know the book of Leviticus, trying to read with three kids, chapter by chapter by chapter, what do we find? We find rules after rules after rules after rules. 
The other week we read about the food laws. Some animals you can eat, some you can't. Ask our kids, they know you can eat. You can't eat the camel, you can't eat the pig, but you can eat the cow. And the priests, you read about them. They have to wear all these special garments, the ephods, the stones, the breastpiece, the tunics, the turbans, and then there's the sacrifices, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. The guilt one, the grain one, the burnt one, the fellowship one, the sin one, rules after rules after rules after rules. And so we're reading a chapter at a time. You can see how exciting our family devotions have been. But they're learning that you don't get any more religious than the Jewish people. They're obviously just hanging out until we get to numbers when we find Caleb in the Bible or or Esther when we get to Esther or Ethan in 1 Kings. But you see, according to the Jewish people, you get saved by obeying the laws, following all those laws. You be good, and that is how you are saved. And in a sense, it reflects what all humanity is like. You do good, God should be good to you. You be good, God should save you. And so, for example, in Buddhism, it's the eightfold path to enlightenment. In Islam, it's the five pillars of Islam. In Hinduism, it is karma, be good. As Australians, we just think, just be a decent person. You see, that is where the problem lies. That is why not everyone will be saved. It's not because of God, but because of the path you have chosen. That will not save. There is the wrong way, which is by works, by your effort, by your good deeds. That is not going to be good enough. But then there is the right way, which is by faith. That is taking God at his word. And so that's what we find, verse 30 to 32. Have a look. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, they're the religious people who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. And why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And so, Paul's making clear, don't work to be saved. To be saved. It won't work. Trust in God. Take God at his word and you'll be saved. It is by faith. And so it's just us turning to God and say, well, God, you said, you, you promised that, that your son Jesus paid for my debt, my sins, my shame. He was raised for my life. Well, I'm going to take you at your word. I'll trust in you. That is the right path. And that's why Paul here again expresses his anguish, his pain. You see, Paul knows the Jewish people, they're so religious. Law after law after law, rules after rules after rules, they follow it, they obey it. But their fault was that they relied on their religion instead of their God. They relied on their efforts instead of God's provision. And that's what we see, chapter 10, verse 1 to 3. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And so Paul makes clear that try as hard as you like. Strive as hard as you like. All you're doing is trying to establish 
your own way to be saved. All you're doing is trying to establish your own way of getting up to God, and it won't work. And do you know what we call that? Do you know what the Bible calls that? It calls that self-righteousness. It's like trying to fly to Sydney in a plane, but refusing to trust in the pilot. And so instead, you make your own way there. You try to build your own plane. It just won't work. You won't get there. And so self-righteousness won't work simply because it is not God's way. And now what Paul does is he helps us understand the place of the laws, the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. See, the, the laws, they function like, you know, those bright orange traffic cones down the side of the road. So just imagine two long, long straight rows of traffic cones. The laws are saying, don't cross this line. It's not safe. That was the job of the laws. Don't cross this line. The laws don't say, trust in me, I'll save you. And the laws don't say, trust in yourself. You trip over these cones all the time. Don't trust yourself. The, the laws were meant to just be a guide. This is where it's safe. Outside, it is not safe, so don't cross the line. But they are all pointing in one direction. It's all pointing forward to the future, to Jesus Christ himself. And so the 600 or so laws in the Old Testament, they were all pointing towards the future, pointing to Jesus, trust in him. Not the laws, not the cones. He is the one who will perfectly fulfill all the laws. He is the one who meets all the laws demands. And he is the one who gave his life to pay all the punishment that the laws demand. You see, the laws were mere signposts pointing forward to Jesus. And that's why Paul says, Jesus is the end of the law. He's the one who will make you right with God. Not the cones, not the laws, but Jesus. And so look at verse 4. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Don't make your own way there. Don't establish your own righteousness and try to make yourself right with God. Believe in the one whom God has offered for your salvation. And so our first question, why isn't everyone saved if it is God's choice ultimately? Well, the answer is because so many have chosen the wrong way. So many have chosen to establish their own way of being saved. I'll try harder, I'll strive harder, I'll be decent. That's our way, not God's way. And so no one can, in fact, say, it's not fair. I don't get to choose. I don't get a choice. Well, you do get a choice. You do get a choice. Just like little Lloyd here, he gets a choice to stay quiet or cry, but that's all right. <laughs> and so no one can ever say, we don't get a choice. It's not fair. You do get a choice. And if you end up not being saved, it is because you have chosen wrongly. I'll say it again. You all do get a choice. But if you end up not being saved, it is because you have chosen wrongly. So now this brings us to the second question. How can anyone be saved in the first place? 
It's the how question now. And it comes down to two things. It is only possible because God makes it possible. But then the tension we see here is that we also make it possible. So firstly, it is God who makes salvation possible. God not only chooses, he provides the means. And so forget striving, forget working hard, forget trying to be religious, forget even searching, Paul says. You don't need to go to heaven to work it out. You don't need any mystical experiences to know for sure. Jesus has already come down to you. And you don't need to die before you work out that there is life after death, that there is in fact eternal life, that there is in fact life of God. You don't need to die first to know. Jesus was already dead and he came back from the dead. And so Paul's making clear, you don't need to go far. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to go searching because God has come near. The message of, message of salvation, the promise of salvation is the message of the gospel. And you've heard it. You have heard it. Look at verse 5, 5 to 8. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. And so that's saying, forget that, that will not work. And now verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who was sent into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. And so Paul's making clear here the striving for any salvation, any striving at all, is over. Jesus has come and has brought salvation to us. And that is the message you have heard. And so if you have heard in your life, in even the last week, that Jesus is King and Lord. He came, the Son of God, to die for you, to bear your place on the cross, to pay for the penalty that you deserve, so that you might have life with God, so that you might receive eternal life, so that you might be adopted into the kingdom of God. Well, you've heard. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the message of hope. But now, how does that message, that gospel, become ours? It's nice to hear, but how does it actually translate to our own life? Well, it's not just a message of Jesus dying. How does it become a message of Jesus dying for me? So that it's not just a message of Jesus being punished, but how does that become Jesus being punished for me? And we don't want this just to be a message of Jesus being raised from the dead, but how do we translate it so that Jesus was raised to life for me? So how does the gospel message become ours? Well, it becomes ours if we receive it. And how do we receive it? Well, this is our choice. We believe it in our hearts and we confess it with our mouth. You see, our mouth expresses publicly what our heart believes internally, fully, wholeheartedly. Look at verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
There's your freedom to choose to believe. And so what this means is that it needs to be from the heart if it is for real. You see, we can all fool each other. We can come to church each week and do all Christian things and be nice and kind and generous. But if it's not from the heart, then it's not for real. We might even be good enough to fool ourselves that I think I'm a Christian. But you see, there's no fooling God because he sees our heart. And what this also means is that it needs to be from our mouth, which means our faith must be public. You can't be private about your Christian faith. And that's why when we do have baptisms here or professions of faith, we get them to share their faith, to share their testimony. Will you stand there in front of everyone and publicly declare to everyone that Christ is Lord, that Christ is my Lord, from the mouth and from the heart? And so what this means is that though God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, you choose to believe too. It is your faith too. Though God chose you first, you don't know that, but though God chose you first, though God gave you the faith you have to believe, it doesn't change your nature, it doesn't suspend your own choice, you choose too. You believe too. It is your faith. And so in verse 13, we can see this is a call to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is your choice. Will you choose? And so how do you then know whether you are amongst the elect of God? That God chose you before the foundations of the earth. How do you know that? Well, it is easy. Extremely easy. If you can call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. There is nothing left for you to do. Christ did it all already. Just call out and you will be saved. It is that easy. God has done it all. And that's because it is God who makes salvation possible. But then this brings us to the second point. How is it possible that anyone can be saved? Well, God makes it possible, but God also chooses to use people to make it possible. God makes it possible by providing Christ, but God also uses people to proclaim Christ. I'll say that one again. God makes it possible by providing Christ, but God also uses people to proclaim Christ, to make salvation possible in this world. And here we see Paul's wonderful logic. Look at verse 14 to 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so those of us who proclaim that Christ is Lord, and we proclaim it to our friends and family and colleague, what this is telling us is that we have beautiful feet. Because this is the way 
the world will hear of Christ. This is the way the world will believe in Christ. But then some of us here might be thinking, well, why doesn't God just click his finger and every believer believes without anyone proclaiming? Now, I thought about this one a bit, but let's think about it. How much more tremendously powerful is God that rather than doing all himself, which he can, he doesn't need us, but he chooses to use weak, frail, broken human beings to proclaim what? A weak, a foolish message of a crucified king, the Son of God. It is through weak people, through this weak message, that brings salvation to this world. I mean, if God can work in that way, it shows his tremendous power. It shows his tremendous wisdom. And he demonstrates his power even through our weakness that he can bring salvation. And so how is it possible that anyone can be saved? God makes it possible by giving Christ, but God uses people like you and me to proclaim Christ. You see, calling on the Lord depends on believing. Believing depends on hearing. Hearing depends on proclaiming. Proclaiming depends on being sent. And God involves us in his cosmic plan of salvation. I mean, that is God's wonderful design. God will save but we are also responsible. And so that's our passage. It's the other side of Romans 9. So how do we keep this biblical tension in salvation together? God is responsible, but we're also at the very same time responsible. God is sovereign, I mean. We are responsible. Well, we affirm them both. We don't butcher one for the good of the other. We don't do anything to the other. We affirm them both absolutely, absolutely true. And so as hard as it is, and we might remain uncomfortable with this in our minds, we can affirm God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Salvation is ultimately his choice and his work. But we're also absolutely responsible in obedience, salvation is also our choice to believe or reject. So let's reflect on that for a moment. You see, however this is working inside your mind, we can never deny God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. It can't be any other way. Salvation, we must remember, is always 100% God's choice and work. Otherwise, what might result? Otherwise, in heaven there might be some people there who would claim, I actually had a part to play in getting myself here in heaven. I contributed something. At the very least, at least my, my contribution is that I chose God first. No. And God will have none of that. God will not allow anyone to rob any glory from him. God will have none of that. I mean, we must remember, Jesus said pretty clearly, you did not choose me, I chose you. I chose you first. That's why you're able to choose me. And that's why Spurgeon, he said this, I found this very helpful. 
He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Isn't that the case? If God did not choose you before you were born, would he choose you now, knowing what our hearts are like, looking deep into our hearts and seeing darkness and wickedness and evil and shame? We try to hide things from everyone and we try to hide it from God, but God sees it. Would he choose us now? You see, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. It is ultimately his choice, his work, 100% God in salvation. If it wasn't, we would lose all assurance of salvation. We can never be certain. Even if it was, let's just say, 1% up to us. How do we ever know we've done that 1%? We would lose all assurance of salvation. It is 100% God. Absolutely sovereign. Absolutely his choice. Absolutely his work. But yet somehow, on the flip side, though God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, it never infringes on our freedom to choose. And that's why it hurts our brain so much. How does that work? We remain absolutely responsible in our obedience. We choose to believe Christ or we choose to reject Christ and that is our responsibility. And so if we end up in heaven, and I pray that all of us will, we will have God to thank. But if we end up in hell, we only have ourselves to blame. We remain absolutely responsible in our obedience to believe Christ, and we remain absolutely responsible in our obedience to proclaim Christ. And so we are responsible to believe in the first place. And when we do believe, it is our responsibility to also proclaim Christ. So let's have a look at that. You see, that is exactly what we see in our passage. Romans 9 is clearly about God's sovereign choice. Romans 10 is clearly about our responsibility to believe. And that's why Charles Simeon, he said this. He said, and this should be our attitude as well. When I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. We must delight in it. That's chapter 9. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side of the question. And that's Romans 10. Now he tried to illustrate these two extremes, these two truths we find in Scripture. And the way he did this was he used an image from the Industrial Revolution. He said this, As wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet subserve a common end, so may truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconciled with each other and equally subserve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. So it's just like two gears going in separate direction, 
but yet they serve the same purpose. And we see it over and over again in Scripture. In Acts 13, just one short verse. All who were appointed for eternal life, what did they do? They believed. Though they were appointed by God for eternal life, they still had the responsibility to choose to believe. And it's exactly what we saw in the first reading with the Ethiopian eunuch. God ordained everything there. He did not know. God ordained all those things for Philip to come by to share with him the gospel. But he heard the gospel. It was proclaimed to him. And what did he do? Well, he believed. And so why isn't everyone saved? Simply because of unbelief. You have the choice to accept or reject God's gift of salvation. And if you refuse, you only have yourself to blame. And so the question tonight for those of you who are not yet Christians, you're still exploring, trying to discover, clear up your doubts, it is great that you are here, but you need to hear this tonight. The offer is for you as well, and it is your responsibility. God has graciously, out of his own heart, given, him, given you his very own son to bear your sin and guilt and shame and punishment, to raise the Lord Jesus so that you might have eternal life. What will you do? Will you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? You see, the responsibility now is yours now that you have heard it. And it is yours alone. No one can make it for you. No one of us can force it upon you. And so what will you choose? And if you do, if you do choose to believe, what you'll find is that, yes, you have chosen God. But what you'll learn is that, yes, God has chosen you first. Billy Graham, he, he puts it this way, and I really like this. At the entrance to the gates of heaven is a sign saying, Come, whoever will believe. Whosoever will believe. But as you walk through the gates of heaven, on the inside is a sign saying, Chosen before the foundation of the world. You see, the offer is here for you now. Will you believe? Once you do believe, you will learn that you were chosen first. But now it is your responsibility to believe. But now for those of you who already believe, what's our responsibility? Well, it is to proclaim Christ. For if you don't proclaim, then who will hear? And if no one hears, then who will believe? And so whose job is it to proclaim? Well, it is the job of every single Christian, you and me. It is your responsibility and it is my responsibility. But then some of us might say, well, I haven't been caught. Some of you might be thinking, I haven't been caught. Well, he is your call. Hear it loud and clear. Go and proclaim Christ. You want a calling? There you go. You've been caught. <laughs> Unless we who already believe proclaim Christ, it is our job, it is our responsibility, 
then those who have never heard of Christ will be lost and lost eternally. You see, we've got the biggest, greatest responsibility in all the world. It's not the, the, the prime minister who has the biggest task in our nation. It's not the president who has the biggest task in our world. It's not the UN. It is every single Christian to proclaim this word. Have you ever imagined that you carry words that are so important? I mean, someone once said this, if God has called you to be a preacher, and he has, you've been called, remember, about a minute ago? If God has called you to be a preacher, don't settle for being something less, like a president or king. You see, as Christians, you'll have no greater responsibility than this, and you have nothing better to offer the world than this, to make Christ known so that people might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you do, we see here you, you have beautiful feet. I mean, physically it might look ugly, but spiritually it brings the message of life. This is the means that God has chosen to reconcile this world to himself, and it involves us. And so what this means for all of us, is that we have all been called to proclaim Christ. We all absolutely are responsible for that. But what this also means for some of us is that because this task is so big, so important, so great, so desperately needed in our world, then for some of you, it will mean leaving your jobs, doing this type of work full time, perhaps exploring a ministry apprenticeship, then going off to Bible college, becoming ministers of the gospel, going out into this world as missionaries. For some of you, it will mean that. You see, we're all meant to proclaim, all of us. But some of us will get to do it full time. And if we have such a great responsibility as this, given by us, by God, it is a work that will mean an eternal difference for those we share the gospel to. If it's so important, then every single one of us ought to consider, should I consider using my life in this way? And why not? Can I also be like Isaiah, who will say to God, well, who will you send, Lord? Send me. Can we be like the Apostle Paul? I count my life of no value, but help me, Lord, to use my life to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Let us not be Christians that get sucked into thinking that there's anything more urgent, more important than to give our life to this cause. He said when we look at the commitment of many other religions, it should actually bring much shame to Christians. One professor, he once said, Buddhists, they give their firstborn. Mormons, they give two years to be missionaries. Christians, they give excuses. It sounds funny, but it happens often enough. But the need in our world is so great. How will they believe if no one will go to proclaim? There's this province in China, Anhui province. There are about 1.8 million Protestant Christians 
They meet in 5,000 churches. How many ministers do they have? 102 ordained ministers. And what that means? One minister per 18,000 people. One minister per 18,000 people. I mean, don't we need more workers, more proclaimers? And of course, around the world, there are still 3.1 billion people who have yet to hear about Christ. How will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if there's no one to proclaim? How will they proclaim if no one's caught? Well, you have been caught about five minutes ago now. It is our absolute responsibility to proclaim Christ. And so how do we keep this tension together? Somehow, they're both true. Somehow, we just keep it. Somehow, we trust that it fits well in God's mind. It might never in our mind, but we affirm God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, 100% God. But we remain absolutely responsible in our obedience to believe Christ and absolutely responsible in our obedience to proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wonder and wisdom, you have made us such people with minds and abilities and choices and wills and understanding that they all fit still under your sovereign purposes. We thank you for what you've done in your plan for salvation, that you're absolutely sovereign, but yet you would still use us. You would give us that responsibility. So for those of us who have yet to believe, help us to choose wisely. For those of us who already believe, help us to proclaim Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, stay here, please. Um, there were a few questions that came in, but they came in very late. So I'm only going to ask one question, and it's going to pop up on the screen, because they're all asking a very similar thing. So. How can we say it is our own choice, but also believe that God's grace is irresistible? Yep. God's grace is irresistible. So if God has chosen you before the beginning of time, he will save you. There is no one who can stop that. The, the, the gate of Hades cannot stop God's purpose of saving you. But the thing is, you have no idea that you've been chosen. You have no idea. We have no idea who out there have been chosen or elected by God. We don't have uh, in our access or resource the secret things that rest in the mind of God. And so it is always irresistible, but we do not know that. But when we do believe, we know why. Because God has first chosen us. When we choose to uh, submit to Christ, to express our faith in God, we know that God has first chosen us. So it was irresistible. Now theologically, we can see that after the fact that it was. There was all these things were happening. And the way to think about this is, instead of trying to think about this question intellectually, we, we try to keep this tension together, but we can't, try to see it from our experience. So if you who are Christians already, reflect on how you became a Christian and can see, looking back in hindsight, man, God was doing that, God put that person in my life, God shared that message with me at church, God used that person to to tell me something, and you can see that that was all God's plans and purposes to bring you to the point where you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that, that God raised Christ from the dead. You see, it is irresistible because those God has chosen, whom God has chosen, will always be saved. But it's just that we don't know that until we believe. Does that? That's good. I've got two really quick questions. If someone here tonight doesn't trust in the Lord Jesus, what would you tell them to do tonight? Yep, excellent. Thank you. <laughs> if you have not yet trusted, I mean, this is the biggest decision you'll ever make, but it is your choice, your decision. We, I would want you, if possible, come and see me and you can make that decision tonight to give your life to Christ, to submit to Christ, to believe in your heart, confess it with your mouth. Do it tonight. It is urgent. But if you're not at that point where you can say, well, I'm, I'm going to wholeheartedly believe this, well, let me know also so that you can explore more. We can help you with your doubts and help you along this, this path. And for those people who trust Jesus and want to live for him, something we can do this week. Yeah, yeah this week. I mean, the, the challenge is real, isn't it? There are, there are not just people walking around. There's not just cousins and aunties and uncles. They're not just people walking around. They're actually people headed towards the worst place in all eternity. That's where they are headed. So what we can do this week is perhaps we might use our mouth wisely and proclaim Christ that they might hear and hopefully they might believe as well. Thank you.